What is up, ladies and gentlemen? Happy freaking Monday. My name is Austin Jardine. Welcome to the Vanguard Project Podcast. I hope you all had a wonderful weekend, got outside, enjoyed some fresh air, maybe went for a hike, hit the range, the gym, whatever it is that fills you up in your free time. I am super stoked for this episode, listening to it again. uh, It was a lot of fun. I feel like I took a lot away the second time around as well. But before we get into it, just a quick refresher of what this podcast focuses on. My goal uh, in these interviews is best summed up as growth through story, strength through community. And uh, what I mean by that is uh, as I sit down with these folks, uh, we dive into their lives to understand how they got to where they're at, giving you some insights or ways of thinking to help push you forward or find a community to join in on. So with that being said, I do my best to let the interviewees share their life experience and dive into what they've learned and give you something to chew on throughout the week. Uh, fortunately, you know, I've been I've been super blessed to have been partnered with a uh, or to have partnered with a few companies on this adventure. Uh, today's episode is brought to you by Everly Stock. Everly Stock is based out of Boise, Idaho, and they manufacture some high-quality packs and technical gear. I've worked with them in a uh, in a few different ways over the years, and I've uh, been a gigantic fan of all of their packs. Most recently, uh, I've been trading for a few different events, uh, fixing to summit one or two peaks in Idaho this year. Then hunting season's coming up; or it'll be here sooner sooner than we think. Uh, also, you know, overall fitness as well, and uh, some long-range and pistol matches. So, in preparation for all of these things, I've been hitting the gym pretty regularly with my F1 mainframe. Uh, I've been loading it up with anywhere between 45 and 80 pounds, kind of depending on whether or not I'm just rucking on the treadmill or using the stair climber. Uh, the F1 mainframe is uh, is their load-bearing and meat hauler frame uh, that can be coupled with just a bunch of different packs to switch it up for whatever you're doing. So that being said, uh, if you need a new frame or a pack or maybe some technical gear, uh, give my buddies at the retail store a call. Uh, let them know that I sent you and uh, get set up for your next adventure. So linked in the episode description will be a hand full of other codes and discounts and all those good things so uh check those out but be sure to like subscribe follow all the good stuff and uh that's enough talking so let's roll an awesome episode with mr scoby of field ethos journal What is up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to the Vanguard Project. For those of you new to the show, my name is Austin Jardine, and uh, I'm just some dude outside of Boise, Idaho. Over the past couple of years or so, I've gotten really fortunate to have met some really neat people that have learned a lot from, you know, kind of their life experience. And my goal with the show is to sit down with them, uh, have them share with you what they've learned, how they got to where they're at, what it is they're up to, hopefully to give you, you know, some insight or some motivation to try something new or get after what it is that you love. So with that being said, super cheesy intro out of the way. It's a, uh, we're recording super early for me on a Friday morning. I'm like one sip of coffee in and uh, Mr. Scobie, thank you for, for hopping on with me today. Well, thank you for having me. Glad, glad to join this morning. Yeah. I'm excited to talk. I've, I read your, your bio on field ethos and I was talking to Shane and it's, you sound like probably one of the most interesting men in the world. So if you don't mind, you know, I know that this is our first time talking really, do you mind just kind of inter- introducing yourself and uh, I'll interrupt as we go? Sure. Uh, Mike Scobie, as you mentioned, uh, chief operating officer at field ethos journal. Uh, you know, that's been a relatively new position as of May of this last year. Before that, I spent most of my career with outdoor sportsman's group, uh, editor of Peterson's hunting publisher, guns and ammo, before that as a freelance writer. So kind of writer 
editor, publisher, always been involved in the media aspect of this industry. That's awesome. So have you grown up kind of in the outdoor industry or was that something that you developed later on? I've spent my whole career in the outdoor industry since I got out of college and uh, not with any background, not, not father or family ties into it in any way. I just, you know, went to college at Washington State University and was thought about being a lawyer. That was my idea was, you know, be a lawyer. And really by the time I got to be a senior, I was like, why do you want to be a lawyer? You know, I really just <laughs> I hated it. Uh, it was, it was horrible. Uh, I, I learned that all the stuff you saw on TV, the courtroom dramas while exciting. And I think would have been very entertaining as a career, for the most part, doesn't pay very well. And the only reason I was wanted to be a lawyer uh, was to afford my hunting lifestyle. I mean, since I was, you know, six years old, that's all I ever wanted to do was hunt and fish. That's all I did. You know, I did all through my teens and through college, spent most of my time hunting and fishing. In fact, picked the university I went to uh, WSU strictly because of the mule deer hunting, as well as the, uh, the pheasant hunting and waterfowling around that school. Um, so really, you know, at the end of four years, I was kind of like, man, I don't, I don't really want to be a lawyer. I have no passion for it. Um, I just want to hunt and fish and, and I just through happenstance, which, you know, you find so much, I think in this industry, you meet somebody, you know, somebody that had a connection to the outdoor industry. In this case, it was a guy named Skip Knowles, who was uh, still an editor at Wildfowl magazine, but back then he was the editor at Washington hunting, fishing and news and, uh, Washington, Washington Fishing and Hunting News was the full, full title of it. Small, you know, obviously state-based newspaper, uh, hunting and fishing newspaper. And, you know, we got to know each other. He goes, man, all you do is hunt and fish. You know, why don't you start doing some writing for me? And I'm like, well, I've never really written anything other than college papers and things like that. And he goes, no, I just, you know, write down your thoughts on hunting and fishing in these different areas. And I can pay you $75 a piece. And I'm like, done and done. <laughs> That's the end of my career right there. You know, so I started cranking articles that, 18, 19 years old for pretty small amounts of money, but that I thought was life-changing at the time. And uh, that's what launched me into a freelancer, really. <laughs> that's a pretty good story. So did you, what led you to maybe go back a little bit? What led you down the path of uh, wanting to go and become a lawyer? Was there anything kind of other than, other than, man, I just want to hunt and fish? That's it. No, it was just money. I mean, uh, you know, if you looked at well, a couple of things, actually, <clears throat> money was a driver. But the other was back then, let's see, late 80s, early 90s. I graduated high school in 91. Courtroom dramas, you know, were a big thing on TV. I mean, it was, you know, it looked just so exciting. And law so and order. Law and order, that type of stuff. And, you know, you they don't tell you your freshman year of college, hey, the average attorney makes, you know, average criminal attorney makes $30,000 a year. And you're like, oh, that sucks. Uh, what you realize is that the corporate attorneys that are dealing with, you know, contract and tort and everything else, that's what really makes a lot of money. And that happens, in my opinion, to be the most boring of all aspects of law. You don't learn that until you're a senior and you're too far invested in this path to uh, to do much about it at that point. Um, no, it's just, you know, it's just all I ever wanted to do. And, and you know, so I guess early on, you know, I, uh, I had an uncle that was a doctor that went to Africa. And I remember seeing his photos. I remember reading Horn of the Hunter by Robert Rourke as a kid. They go, man, I want to go see Africa someday. And, you know, the only way I thought I could afford that was to somehow become a professional in, in law or in medicine I was not smart enough for, um, you know, how else do you afford going to Africa? And that really was my driving goal, you know, as a kid. Yeah. Okay. So you grew up then uh, kind of in the outdoor hunting and everything world, right? Was there some like underlying passion or desire to 
make it a career or or were you like hey I want it just to be a hobby law is going to be what fuels it I'm going to work to live rather than live to work exactly no it's all it was I just wanted to figure out how to carve out a path <clears throat> to be able to hunt as much as I could I mean I look back and I actually kept a journal since you know my earliest days I look back at those days in college I hunted five to seven days a week, every day for four years. I mean, I would schedule my classes around hunting season. You know, I'd make sure that I didn't have a class before 10 in the morning. Uh, so I could hunt in the morning. I would probably try to be done by two. So I'd go pheasant hunting in the afternoon. And there was, it was a rare day that went by that I didn't go hunting some, you know, for something pheasants go fishing for something, uh, you know, trout fishing, bass fishing, whatever, uh, you know, in the small ponds around the Palouse area, that's all I did was either you know, fish in the early season or hunt. So that, that's it. That was always my passion. You know, since I was a little kid, that's all I wanted to do. And that was probably a product, you know, of my upbringing. My father was a, a big hunter, big fisherman, still is. He's 85 years old and probably fishes 150 days a year. Uh, he was, you know, an amazing fisherman. And, and, and unfortunately, was older when he had me. So his big game hunting was on its waning years. Uh, when I came up, we still big game hunted a lot together. But we did a lot of duck and upland bird together. Uh, that was always you know, my upbringing. Yeah. Okay. So when you talk about scheduling your classes and stuff, and I'm going to ask this question mostly for, you know, guys and gals that might be listening, they're like, dude, I'd love to be able to hunt while I'm in school. How was it, how were you able to structure your classes? And then how did that work for you around hunting? I mean, as far as being able to stack responsibilities. Yeah, it's a good point, right? I mean, <clears throat> I graduated in four years. I had a pretty good GPA. Uh, so many kids in college flunk out. They don't make it. Uh, in fact, I remember, you know, my dad went to Purdue actually, uh, before that he was an engineer and he said this, he said, a professor said this to him as his freshman year. And I had a very similar conversation with a professor, my freshman year, which is look to your left, look to your right, you know, in a major, huge classroom setting, those kids won't be here when you graduate, you know, two out of three kids will, will wash out. And, I don't know. I always just put, I had the ability to put my nose to the grindstone and work what I had to, and then hunt at other times. Um, and that even probably helped me in life as a freelancer. You know, when I was in my early twenties and I was just trying to, you know, make a buck and make a name for myself as a writer, you'd hold a normal job and I'd still get up at four in the morning and try to get an article done, or I'd stay up till two at night. You were getting an article done. So you had to make your priorities. You had to keep your, you know, your, what paid the bills, whether that was school, you know, that was your main focus or a job out of school um, as well as then carve out personal time to go hunt or to go hunt and fish or to develop a career in this industry. Okay. Okay. So when you say uh, working through priorities, I mean, it's, it's interesting because I feel like when you're in school, school feels like it's the highest priority, but you also are trying to do kind of this freelance writing, paying the bills, all of these things. When you sat down and looked at your priorities, how did you structure it? I'm asking again, kind of for somebody that might be in a situation where they're like, okay, I've got all of these things that are, that feel equally as important. How do I think about it? I think you need to look long-term, right? You got to realize that you can't get fired this week, this year from your day job but you need to look five years down the road, right? And I always had that ability, I think, to look at a long-term goal uh, and kind of set goals for yourself and say, you know, here's where I want to be in five years. And I think a good example of that, you know, I, I always worked in the industry, even in college. I got a, shop, I got a job part-time in a gun shop. Uh, after that, after college, I worked in another gun shop, and then I ended up managing a uh, shooting range, live-on-site shooting range, which is kind of a Funny story right outside of Seattle. Um, you know, they hired me to be this live on range master. And 
you know, you're allowed to just shoot every day and also manage the range and make sure nobody got shot make sure the range was in good working order and running a small business. And as part of that, you know, they uh, had a cabin on site. You got to live on site on this range and live in this little cabin. I was 22 years old, probably. And when I interviewed for the job, it was, uh, they, you know, they interviewed me in the main lodge clubhouse, which was this beautiful log structure that was you know, just massive and beautiful grounds around it. And they go, yeah, and you, and you live here. I'm like, Fantastic. This would be great. I'm, I'm used to living with four guys in an apartment in college. And uh, you know, this would be a massive upgrade. And it was surrounded by 250 acres of woods that you could hunt, you know, when you weren't working. And you had the run of the place essentially. So after I took the job, they offered it to me and I took it. They go, okay, I'll show you the place to live. And it literally was a shack. It was a shack out back that was <laughs> full of rats, full of mice. I used to sit inside there and shoot rats and mice with a 22 uh, inside the house. Um, it was obviously built on a weekend by a gun club work party. No insulation. I mean, it was just third world <laughs> living. Um, you know, back then I was dating uh, gals and, you know, you, you bring a gal back for dinner or something and they would just look at this shack like, oh my God, you know, this guy's never, never going to make it. But that job, you know, while that was a bad side of it, allowed me to shoot nonstop um, as well as, you know, write during the day. I could, I could pursue a freelance writing career. I could shoot nonstop. I could reload. You know, I made almost no money. But you were looking towards the future. You were building an education. You know? Yeah. What was the uh, maybe the most valuable thing you learned out of that experience? I think learning to live within your means and, and waiting for delayed gratification. You know, I think that's something that so many young young people today, they want success immediately. You know, mm -hmm. and, then, and I've made a very successful career in the outdoor industry after probably pushing almost 30 years now. And, but it took years. I mean, <clears throat> for five years, you barely made money as a freelance writer. You struggled to, you know, sell an article. Uh, you didn't make much money at retail. You didn't make much money, you know, running a gun range. Um, but I always looked forward to the goal, you know, five years, 10 years down the line, here's where I want to be. And I think if people enter any job, whether it's in the outdoor industry or in you know normal life, with that mentality that I'm here to pay my dues. I'm here to learn. I'm here to, you know, build a resume essentially that'll allow me to be successful one day is I think a much better place to be. I've, I've hired and had many younger kids work for me later on in my career. And it seems like there's this mentality that, Hey, I've been here for six months. How about a raise? Uh, how about a vice president title? <laughs> like I'll just put in five years first, you know um, there is definitely, it seems like from my generation to today's generation, a desire for just immediate gratification versus saying, you know what, I'm willing to put off financial as well as title and prestige several years down the road when I deserve it, you know? Right. Okay. So in your experience then um, with the delayed gratification, right? How long between let's just say starting from your freelance writing career to the time, how long did it take from the start of your freelance career to your first initial sense of gratification? Probably six, six, seven years, I would say. I graduated in, I was 21. Uh, it was probably late 20s, you know, when you finally realized that there's a career here, there's something to be done here. And, you know, I, about now I was 25, exactly. I just by happenstance, and I guess that's probably another good life skill is pay attention to everybody you meet. You never know where that's going to lead you. You know, relationships in any aspect of business uh, really do count for a lot. And I remember that in college, they said, you know, networking, it's a big deal. Well, who are you going to network with? You got three other buddies, you know, that also don't have jobs and don't have much prospects in the future. Um, and that was a hard networking uh, ability to have then. 
but as you get out in the real world, you start meeting people. And I was working in a gun shop um, in Seattle area. And this guy came in and I noticed he had a different accent. I'm like, uh, where are you from? And he goes, Africa. And he was, he was a professional hunter over for a trade show. No kidding. And I just bet his ear. I'm like, man, I want to, you know, you want to go to dinner. I'd love to talk to you about this and uh, learn more about Africa. I've dreamed of Africa my whole life. And after the end of this dinner, he goes, hey, why don't you come over and go hunting with me? You know, just book a hunt and come hunting with me. I'm like, oh, I can't afford an African safari. He goes, no, I'll cut you a you know, smoking deal on it. Just come over. You'd like to see it. So I, I literally sold every possession I'd accumulated by 25, which amassed to probably $2,000. I borrowed $3,000 uh, from my parents. They thought I was insane. And the total bill was about five grand to go to Africa uh, with airfare and everything back then. And I went on my first safari and I was completely broke. And I remember sitting, you know, on my bunk uh, in this lodge at night with a piece of scratch paper, writing down going, okay, I shot a warthog today. That was $200. I can maybe shoot a gems buck and afford that, but I'd like to get a kudu and that's this much money. I don't know if I have enough much money to do both of them. And there was no other amount of money. It wasn't like, I'll just get out a credit card and put it on a credit card. It's like, no, I've got this much money, you know, but you know, like I said, my parents thought I was insane to spend all of my life savings and going to debt to go to Africa. As it turned out, it was the best thing I ever did for my career. Um, you know, I hit it off with this professional hunter. And after the safari, he goes, man, why don't you come work for me next year? I'd love to have you come over here. And I'm like, uh, okay. So I went home, you know, packed my bags, waited a few months and I moved to Africa and uh, ended up working eh, for about a year uh, for this outfitter and did everything. I mean, and that was the other thing. There was no, hey, you're going to be a professional hunter. It's like, nope, you're going to pick up clients at the airport. You're going to make drinks at the lodge. You're going to you know, help clean animals. You're going to, if we have an overflow of clients and you know, we'll let you kind of apprenticeship guide some of them. Uh, and it was just every you know, menial task that they didn't want to do but it was the best experience I ever had in my life. And at the same time, I was still freelancing for American magazines and doing a lot of writing. And my mother and father, very traditional, you know, my dad graduated from Purdue and went straight to work for Boeing as an engineer. Uh, my mom, you know, worked for Boeing as well. They were just very, you know, traditional in their, in their job thought process. And they just were appalled that, you know, that I'm just wasting away my life at 26, 27, just guiding in Africa and working in Africa and, I remember coming home at, at Christmas and, and my mom was just like, you know, how are you going to explain this two-year lapse essentially on your on your resume of not really working? I'm like, oh, I'm working. I was working in Africa as a professional hunter, you know, with, or with professional hunters, not a professional hunter myself. She was, I, I think it's going to be very detrimental to your career. And about that time, Cabela's called me and I was doing a lot of freelance writing for Cabela's magazine and their digital online properties back then. Yeah, which was kind of a new new thing. This would have been you know, in the early 2000s. And uh, they, they made me a job offer. They said, hey, we'd like you to you know, be a junior editor for our publication. And uh, we'd love you to move out to Sydney, Nebraska. And I said, no, nah, thanks a lot. You know, but I'm going back to Africa. And my future's there. And that's where I'm going to stay. And I hang up the phone and my mom goes, you know, Mike, uh, you made all of $10,000 last year. Um, you're 26 years old. You have no medical coverage. You have no 401k plan. You really might want to call them back. So I did. I called them back. Said, you know what? Maybe I'll take that job. And, and I did. I ended up moving to Sydney, Nebraska. And uh, but in that interview process, when I sat down with them at Cabela's, that's all they wanted to talk about. They're like, you've spent a year in Africa. Yeah. Just just because you love to hunt. Yeah. 
yeah, you're hired. They didn't even look at the rest of my resume. It wasn't, you know, what, how was your grades and what was your degree in? And, you know, what else did you do on your resume? It was like, you've been in Africa. And that experience has probably followed me through my career where guys have just always been very interested, intrigued. Everybody has a, a love affair with Africa. And the fact that you just pulled up stakes and lived there for a year, right. that, uh, that really wowed a lot of, a lot of the future employment opportunities, I would say. Okay. So a lot of things I was taking notes as we, as we were going. So what, what lent itself to taking the risk to go to Africa? I know, I know that it was a dream of yours, right? It was something that you had had thought about or aspired to work towards, right? But what helped you take the risk to move? Because to sell for somebody now, right? To sell all their stuff, move to Africa seems absurd, right? right? What, what would you say to push somebody forward? Well, I guess I didn't look at it as moving there at first. You know, when I first went, it was purely, hey, this is going to be a 10-day safari, right? Fair, and, I, yeah. and I'll work for the next two years to pay off, you know, that debt and, you know, maybe more than two years in my mindset. But it was just a purely an opportunity to go. But once you get there and you go, oh, my word, this is what I've always dreamed of. And this is wild Africa. It's, you know, you by yourself. And I, for part of my job, you know, I, I work across Botswana, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Mozambique, Namibia. I was just on the road and just seeing all of Africa by myself. And it's, it's a very enchanting place. And, and it still is, you know, I've spent 50 trips there since then, I'm sure. Um, so once, once you did that, once you made that initial jump to go do it, just on a, on a normal safari, you fall in love with it. And, and most people that ever do that, I think make, can make a very easy transaction, if an easy transition if there is ever an opportunity to go live here, I'll take it, especially in your twenties, you're not married. You don't have a girlfriend. You don't really have a house. You're renting something. You know, it would be very difficult today, wife, kids, house to say, I'm pulling up and going to Africa, but in your twenties, I would take advantage of any opportunity, whether that's, I've always dreamed of going to Ireland or I've dreamed of going to Africa, or I want to go see, you know, the North pole, take that opportunity when you're in your twenties, because you won't have it in your thirties and probably forties, you know, and if you do, you probably did something wrong in life. (laughs) (laughs) You're running away. (laughs) You're 45 and just leave. Eh, You may not have lived a great life. So. Fair. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's good advice. Just because I know that when you graduate college, right. To your point, it's like, you don't really own anything and you have a whole lot of life left to live. So might as well take advantage of it. Yep. I mean, I, up until I was probably 30, I could have packed everything I owned in my pickup truck and left, you know, and moved from state to state. And I did actually, you know, I, I went from Sydney, Nebraska with Cabela's. And then I did a stint in uh, Wisconsin working for Gander Mountain, their competitor at the time. Uh, and, and once again, that was a job that came up because of my African experience. Um, they wanted to start an international travel hunting business, booking business, essentially. And they knew I, even at age 30 at that point in time, I'd hunted Africa and Mexico and Alaska. And I, you know, I did Alaska on my own and uh, hunted several Canadian provinces and a bunch of states. So at my age, I had a lot of experience uh, traveling and hunting. And so they said, man, we'd love you to, to run our, our travel division for us. So I did about a five-year stint there. And that was, that was wonderful. That was, that probably built even more my repertoire of where I'd been and hunted because for five years, it was a job of checking out lodges. Um, And I just traveled around the world. I mean, anywhere that we wanted to have a destination, I would book a trip in there and go check it out, look at their lodge, see how they run their operation. And then we'd come back and offer that to our customers at Yander Mountain. So for five years, you know, I, I filled a passport essentially. Okay. So a question, how, how, 
did you become so confident in traveling and checking out lodges and more or less kind of rating or, or determining whether or not they were viable for customers? I mean, cause that's, that's an interesting that's, skill to have. Well, it's <clears throat> stem back to Africa. You know, that outfitter I worked for had big aspirations of opening up new places in other countries, fishing, hunting, and photo safari destinations. And so since I wasn't a licensed qualified PH, a lot of the job I ended up doing was, you know, they gave me a Land Rover and a bunch of cash and they said, take off and go check out this lodge up in Mozambique and you will see in a week. I'm like, okay. And I would go. So while I lived there, I probably went to 50 different lodges in Africa to go check out, you know, their operations and see how it was. So I had that just by happenstance, really, uh, in, in Africa. Uh, but and I think back on that and literally they just gave me a wad of cash and a Land Rover. I didn't know how to drive on the left side of the road. I didn't know how to drive you know, with a right-hand vehicle. Um, damn near killed myself several times trying to learn how to drive in a foreign country. And I would just take off, you know, and, and drive through Africa. And, and ultimately, and this is pre-cell phone. I mean, you didn't have really much means of communication. Uh, in fact, I just wrote an article for Field Ethos about one of my trips through Botswana. And it was just random because you nobody really knew where you're at. You didn't have any GPS tracking. You didn't have a cell phone. And one night, I get to the border of Botswana. It was Botswana to South Africa. I was trying to get back to South Africa. And the border was closed, which they do. They These rural border posts, they close at 10 o'clock at night. And I got there like 1030. And it was cold. It was, you know, below freezing that night. I didn't have a sleeping bag with me or anything in the car. So I just, I'm 26 years old, whatever. I'll just sleep in the car. So I'm about ready to go to sleep in the car. And this little knock comes at the door. And it was the border patrol guy and a little native guy. And he was, I say little because he was a bushman. He was very diminutive in size. And uh, he goes, sir, are you waiting for the border? I go, yeah, I'm waiting for the border. He goes, you want to sleep inside? It's going to get cold tonight. And I said, yeah, sure. You know, I'd love to sleep inside. And I figured they must have like bunks or, you know, uh, accommodations for their workers or something. And I walk inside with him. No, no, they had an old school jail cell in the back of this border crossing with iron bars and like a metal fold down cot. And I'm like, okay. And so he just kind of shepherds me into this jail cell and there's a wool blanket and like an old pillow on it. I'm like, okay. And he closes the door behind me. It's like this. <laughs> You're like, this is where I die. <laughs> and he locks it. And he goes, what time do you want to get up? I'm like, what time is the border open? He's like, six o'clock. I'm like, yeah, 530 would be good. He's like, all right. And I sat there going, man, nobody knows where you're at. You have no, you know, nobody knew my schedule. Um, I don't have a cell phone. And I guess in a couple of weeks, guys might come looking for me. Maybe. I don't know. And I don't know if he's going to let me out of here or this extortion case or what this is. And I was just kind of getting my own head and freaking out that night. And like, well, nothing to do but go to sleep and figure it out tomorrow. So I go to sleep and I woke up with keys jangling at like 530 in the morning. And the dude, God bless him, has got like a tray of uh, hot coffee and tea and uh, rusks, which is our kind of like little breakfast biscottis. And he's like, do you take cream and sugar? I'm like, yeah, both. And he goes, okay. And makes me coffee. And away I went. It was a cool experience ever. There's nothing bad about it, you know? But it was just like, that could have gone totally sideways. <laughs> you do enough things like that. Um, and you you run into those wild experiences in Africa just because it is such a third world place that not much rattles you after that. You start sure. traveling Europe or South America or, you know, I've hunted every continent uh, in the world and not a whole lot rattles you after you do that for a couple of years of just traveling on your own through Africa. Yeah. <laughs> I believe it. Okay. So is a, uh, and this is, this is kind of a, 
a fun question because like, you know, I come from the very connected generation, right? Where everything mm-hmm. is instant right there. GPS phone. Was it freeing for you not to have GPS and that connectivity right then? Or was it a little intimidating and kind of nerve wracking? You didn't know any different. Right? I grew up in an era where literally college you know, never had a cell phone. It didn't, didn't exist other than huge box phones you'd see on movies. Uh, I remember my senior year in college, they go, hey, we're going to show you something called <clears throat> called email. <laughs> what the hell would you want email for? They're like, well, because you know, you could send somebody a letter electronically. I'm like, I don't send somebody a letter now. What, what would I want electronic mail for? Right. And you know, you, you don't realize that flash forward 10 years, you live on email and you live on a cell phone and you, you know, but at that time you didn't know any different, you know, it just it's just how it was. I mean, I remember another time I, I used to I did it about 13 times it was the, called the Trans Kalahari Highway it went from South Africa to Namibia and we had a main lodge in Namibia and it was about a 13 to 15 hour somewhat dirt track road uh, before it was paved part of it was paved kind of like our version of the Alcan Highway from Seattle to Alaska just kind of through the remote wild uh, Kalahari region of Africa and I would drive this either with trophies with me with clients whatever um, like I said over a dozen times and I remember breaking down in the middle of it and i had all i had was like my jacket i had a shotgun i brought a side by side in 16 gauge a couple of candy bars a couple of cokes and that was it. broke down and there was no way to communicate with the lodge and so i just sat on the side of the road for like two days and a car came by and it was <clears throat> some white travelers i don't know if they're hunters or photo safari guys i'm like hey flag them down where are you guys going going all the way to Vindhoek. I'm like, hey, there's a lodge between Vindhoek and the border called Kalahari Bush Breaks. If you could stomp in there and uh, just tell them that, you know, Mike Scobie's broke down somewhere around the middle of this Trans-Kalahari Highway and let them know, uh, I'd appreciate it. And go, okay. And then I sat there for like two more days and I'm like, well, I don't know if anybody's going to come or not. You know, and you just start walking. You know, I don't know where you're going to walk. You're out in the middle. Literally, it's where they filmed. If you've ever seen um, The Gods Must Be Crazy, you know, that old, 19, you should watch it, 1970s Bushman Kalahari show. It's all filmed there. It's in the middle of Kalahari Desert. Okay. And uh, I'm just like, I don't know if anybody's going to come or not. Sure enough, like two days after that, a Land Rover comes down the road. It was the lodge owner and he had a tow strap and we towed the Land Rover for, you know, several hours back to the lodge. But you just kind of, you didn't have communication like you did today. I mean... I remember writing letters home and it would take 30 days for a letter to get there and 30 days for one to get back. Ever, you know, so you had very limited communication ability. Okay. So what, what then in that experience, right. Kind of just the Africa experience, what was the most valuable thing that you've learned that you still apply today? A couple of things. I mean, you know, tangible would be just independence take care of yourself you know you'll, you'll be fine <clears throat> it's very rare 99.9 percent of the people in the world are nice they're not out to hurt you they're not out to steal stuff from you there's the one percent that you know you got to watch out for but independence believe in yourself uh don't get panicked but i think it all comes back to you know on a career level long-term level is you know putting in your dues and using every experience as a learning experience um, you know, to build your future career and build your future kind of mental repertoire of where you want to be in five, 10 years, you know? Yeah. Okay. So I took a note kind of going back a little bit to when you started to move into Cabela's and Gander, right. And your mom was like, Hey, you know, is this really smart, smart to be doing this? Is this wise, right? You're not making any money, yada, yada, yada. Obviously you were chasing something that was meaningful to you. Right. (laughs) 
maybe not necessarily knowing that you were building your career at the time. How did you manage kind of your family and say, Hey, listen, I'm doing this for myself. This is something I, you know, passionate about and want to be doing right to kind of continue pushing forward. How did you kind of set those expectations? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I did or not. It was a lot of it was, you know, my parents were a generation as, as probably 90% of Americans are that were not that go, go do something that's fulfilling to you. You know, I don't think my father ever felt that, uh, being an engineer was fulfilling, you know, that he enjoyed it, that he dreamed of somebody like to be an engineer and design airplanes and rockets. I don't think that was ever part of his mental makeup. It was, no, it's a good job. They got a great 401k plan. They have a pension plan. Um, you know, they have all these benefits that provide for my family. And I think in some cases, maybe people should get back to that a, a little bit in the sense that there are examples like myself that have gotten lucky or, fortuitous uh, and have been able to make a very nice career out of something they love doing, but that's not necessarily for everybody. You know, I, I think that, you know, having that stability and having that, uh, you know, looking at long-term goals of family and financial security, and maybe just doing something that you're somewhat happy with, is not a bad idea, but, you know, so for my parents, you know, they had a hard time, you know, reconciling. And it wasn't until, I'm not kidding, probably maybe 10 years ago, I'm 48 now, maybe my mid thirties when they finally thought, okay, he's actually going to make it. You know, he's got a house and (laughs) he's got a 401k plan and he's got a savings account. He's not coming back home. He's not going to come back home. But, you know, I guess they always did provide that. There was never a, there was always a safety net there. It might not have been a lavish safety net, but it was a safety net of, you know, I, I do remember calling my parents a couple of times from Africa. You, you could make an international phone call, obviously, with a calling card, you know, on a pay phone. Like, hey, mom, I'm uh, I'm broke. Can I get a hundred bucks put in my account? They're like, yeah, we'll help you put a hundred bucks in your account, you know. So there was that somewhat of a safety. It wasn't like, oh, here's a trust fund credit card and go have fun. But, yeah. you know, you knew that if you ever got in enough trouble, financial or otherwise, you had a bed at home. You had somebody that would take care of you financially for a little bit. If I called and said, hey, I got a $10,000 gambling debt here in uh, you know, Cape Town, I ain't going to take care of you. But if you were you know, uh, destitute and in a jail in Botswana, they probably would have helped you out. You know? So I think that was a big thing, right? It's how, always knowing there was some kind of family safety net there. Okay. Okay. That's fair. So I know that you'd been writing um, before you left for Africa and everything, what I know, and I know that you said that you had one guy that helped you and I wrote his name down, um, that lent itself, Skip, uh, Skip helped you start writing, right? Was the first guy that helped you get into the freelance world of it. Had you been writing at all up to this point or was there kind of just random? I see you shaking your head. Not at all. I, I met Skip randomly in college and he was a big time, you know, in my mind, big time writer, editor. He was about four years ahead of me. He was graduating right when I was about a freshman. Um, we briefly met, but we stayed in touch. Uh, and he, like I said, managed uh, Washington Fishing Hunting News Magazine. And interestingly enough, that's a tiny little rag. You know, Skip started his career there. I started my career there. Andrew McKean, who later became editor of Outdoor Life and I think still might be today. Uh, started his career there. John Snow, which is the shooting editor of Field and Stream and Outdoor Life, he started his career there. All of us were from that Washington area. So that little magazine newspaper uh, put out a, a ton of writers um, that have still, you know, made made good to this to this day in this industry. Um, but no, it was purely happenstance, and I guess it was purely capitalizing on that moment when you meet somebody that you go, man, that 
that could help me out. You know, that sounds selfish to say, but it was just, you kind of file it away in your mental Rolodex going, he's a connection there. Or I met a guy that, you know, is a professional hunter and that could be a connection there. You know, when you're young, you start meeting people like that. You pay attention to who they are and, and what they do and how you, it may change your career and your lifestyle, you know? Yeah. How did you, and this is kind of a, a loaded question, but you know, it's, it, it's one, one thing to think about, Hey, you know, I know this person as a contact here can get me there and kind of doing it selfishly versus just knowing and being smart about it. Right. And being like, Hey, I know this person can help me down the road. How did you navigate those waters? I think you always have to provide something of value. You know, if you, if you enter a relationship saying, what can they do for me? Uh, I, I don't think that takes you very far. I think it's a, he's a connection. He's a conduit. He'll open a door for me, but you got to produce, you, you know, whether that's going to be a writer, you know, I'll turn in a good article that'll never be late with a good photo package. And I'll always be that reliable guy for him because had you abused that relationship, if you had, you know, okay, you got me a contract for an article and you, and you never delivered upon it, or you did a shoddy job, it would have been a one and done. You know, you, you would not have uh, gone much farther than that. So you, you need to recognize a conduit that'll get you somewhere, but then you have to do your your side of the bargain and whatever that is, you know, it's a job forum or, you know, you really need to deliver or you'll quickly be, you know, not only that, not only will that door shut, but since, especially in this industry, it's so small, everybody knows everybody and it does not take very long for good or bad to say, Oh, that guy always does his work. He always gets done on time. He does great material. You need to, you need to work with him or eh, I'd avoid that guy. You know, he left me hanging on three articles and uh, never did respond to an email. And, you know, he was late on two of them, blah, blah, blah. It, it doesn't take long, good or bad for that to get around the industry. Right. Okay. So when you started to develop your writing skill, um, was that something that you had, kind of wanted to start working on just stepped into did you decide just randomly like okay great I'm going to take this one and then start to build myself as a writer no I I, I just didn't know anything about it right I mean I was a voracious reader since you know I was a child and I, I think I read everything sporting you could from modern to classic and you know it, everything I just read nonstop. so I didn't have any formal training as a writer but I, I did I was a voracious reader um, I didn't think there was ever an opportunity to be a writer and get paid for it. I, did, I didn't know that was a job option. You know, that, that was maybe another complaint of a university experience. You know, when you go to university, you, you get assigned a counselor that kind of is a career guidance counselor. For the most part, they're either grad students, which have never done anything in their life, or they're somebody that's lived in academia their whole life and have never done anything in the real world. So they don't have these, oh, you, know, you could become a freelance writer. Here's about what the salary is. You could become a travel agent in the hunting world. Here's kind of what that salary is and what that job looks like. They don't know. I mean, they, they, there is definitely a void in, uh, if, I won't call it vocational training, but in ideas of what you could do. So I never even had the idea that you could become a writer. <clears throat> it wasn't until happenstance, you know, that you're meeting Skip that, oh, this, this could be a career. You know, you could do this. And so I kind of had on the job training with him. You know, the first articles I turned in, I've, I've saved every article I've ever written and you go back and read them like, Oh my God, that's horrible. That's really bad writing. <laughs> um, but you would emulate what you read, which is also really bad writing in most magazines and newspapers of the day. And, but Skip was very instrumental in, in 
you know, kind of building you and sending back good, you know, creative edits. Like the worst thing you can get is your mom saying, that's great. I think it's wonderful. Well, it's not, it's not very good, but your mom says it's good. You want a guy that goes, eh, why don't you try that again? That's not very good. This whole opening paragraph sucks. Uh, you want that, you know, constructive criticism. And that's what will build you. You know, if you, if you can't take constructive criticism and take, uh, you know, some critical thought about what you did and you just think it's the best, you'll never grow. You need somebody to kind of tell you, hmm, I'd change that up if I was you and, and rewrite that. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. I don't know anything about how kind of the freelance and writing world kind of functions. Do you mind kind of sharing your track into it and what that looks like? So if so anybody out, anybody out there is like, man, that kind of sounds like fun. I love hunting. I love fishing. I'm good at reading, maybe not writing yet, but I want to break into it. How's that look like? It starts with a lot of rejection. Uh, back in the day, it was all written rejection, uh, actual form letters. You'd write a letter, <clears throat> excuse me, to an editor. You'd say, hey, I got an idea for an article. Here's what it's going to be. And I got this photo package for it. And you'd write that up and you'd send it off and you'd wait a month and you'd get a rejection letter back saying, no, thanks. Shut up, kid. And I'd put them on the wall. I'd add a little nail stuck in my wall. I would just stick rejection letters on it. And then somebody would go, yeah, why don't you go ahead and do that? I'll commission that article. I'll pay you 250 bucks for it. Great. Here's the deadline. I need it by July 1st. You know, you'd write it up. If you, and so, you know, for the first two, three years, the rejection letters far outweigh the acceptance letters. Um, and I'm sure this happens today. It's just all email. Um, but after you establish yourself and after you start getting your byline and more magazines, you get known for delivering something on time that's good and it's got a good photo package with it. Then it kind of swaps from you asking them to people calling you, editors calling you saying, hey, do you got the bandwidth to do an article on this? You've been to Africa. Can you write a primer on African hunting? Yep, I can do that. And then it'll get to the point, if you're good, that you get more work than you can probably handle. Um, and you will start backing it off or just taking the assignments that are paying top dollar. Uh, and that's generally the progression of it. But yeah, it starts with, you know, early on, a lot of querying, a lot of, you know, trying to get you know, trying to just sell your work to them looking for your work and trying to buy it. Uh, and that also goes back to networking. You know, you go to, I remember going back to SHOT Show <clears throat> in my early years, it was just trying to meet editors of magazines because you couldn't get through to an editor. And that's probably true today. Most of them get inundated with phone calls, get inundated with query letters. They do not respond very well. Um, so back when I was in my 20s and early 30s, when I'd go to SHOT Show, it was like, ooh, that's Anthony Licata. He's editor of Outdoor Life, Field and Stream. I want to I talk to him. That's Gordy Cron. He's editor of uh, North American Hunting Club in the day. I want to talk to him. And you got to know these guys. And after you got to be buddies with them, then it was a phone call away. You no longer were just blind querying somebody you didn't know. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So <laughs> when, um, when you'd go to like shot show and stuff and approach these guys, were you approaching them with like the, Hey, you know, my, my name's Mike and I write and I want to be your buddy and these things, or was it kind of a little bit, how did you, how did you navigate that? Probably, probably to my detriment. I was a young eager beaver kid that probably bored him to death, you know, <laughs> sure. Uh, I, I definitely was not cool and subtle about it. And I probably should have been, um, you know, you look, they've all become good friends. All these guys, and I, and it was interesting. You meet guys like Anthony Licata back in the day or Gordy Cron. And, you know, they were all relatively junior editors. Well, now they're all my age or older and they're all senior editors somewhere or directors or publishers. And, and we've all come up in this industry together, but creating that network of guys. And yeah, I guess if I could look back at my 26 year old self, it would have been, yeah, played a little cooler. Just, uh, you know, just try to be buddy, go buy the guy a drink and get talking shop with it. <laughs> Don't just, you know, hound him, you know. I think uh, one thing I did that probably set me apart 
for Christmas one year, after I got to know who all these editors were, I made my own home wine. I lived out in Nebraska and it, not for any reason of, uh, you know, wine uh, snobbery. I just literally figured out early on, it's like, I can make wine for like two bucks a bottle versus $7 a bottle. And, uh, you know, I can make cases of it. And so I made my own wine and I made my own custom labels with my name on it. It was a real funny copy on the back about how, you know, these, these grapes were uh, probably stomped by, not by foot because of a foot fungus, but by hand. And they were all bought from the half off bin at the local grocery store. And you just this <laughs> kind of satirical, funny copy. And I, packaged up every box of wine and shipped it to every editor of a magazine for Christmas. And all of them called me like, that was awesome. That's a, that's not only great writing, but it was a great gift. And thank you. So doing little things like that, not just setting a Christmas card, but trying to find something that's funny that gets them to know who you are out of the masses of other guys that want to be writers. I would say today, the influencer, you know, is probably the similar to the freelance writer was 25 years ago. You know, there was lots of them. There was lots of guys that wanted to be freelance writers um, and it was hard to break through that noise. And that's probably similar to aspiring influencers today, where they're trying to do some stick that gets them noticed, gets them picked up, gets some sponsorship, et cetera. You know? Yeah. Yeah. How would you compare or stack up the influencer world, the, the media world versus like the written world now? I think the big problem, if there is one of the influencer world, is that there is no check and balance to it whatsoever. It's a democracy of information for good and bad. Uh, by meaning that, like, there was always an editor, you know, it was a junior editor, a copy editor, a senior editor in place of a true media structure. It was kind of a check and balance. Going, no, we're not published. Either that guy doesn't know what he's talking about, or that's offensive, or that's, you know, not how we want to portray hunting, or it's not how we want to portray long range shooting. There was always a senior guy that, for good or bad, you know, controlled that narrative. Today, obviously, with the, you know, everybody's got a voice on a social media platform, you know, on some cases, that's good. And, and in many cases, I think it's bad and detrimental for hunting. You know, you get people posing horrible shots with animals and offensive shots with animals that I think does fuel, you know, the uh, the hatred of hunters. It hasn't helped hunters at all. I mean, I think Matt Ranella recently wrote a story about how influences are bad for hunting. and I, I don't disagree with it. I mean, influencers without a check and balance, just, Hey, I'm going to publish whatever I want. You know, that's not always the best thing for them. Not the best thing for our industry or hunting as a whole. Um, so yeah, it's, it's different. I guess it's the, the lack of adult supervision, you know, and there's many things I've written up until this day that an editor will go, mm, you may want to back that off a little bit. That's a little bit rough or that's a, a little bit offensive. And, and you go back and read it a week later and you go, yeah, he's right. I probably should. I'm glad we did change that. You know, we didn't write it quite that way. Whereas today, somebody will just write whatever they're thinking. They publish it themselves, you know, on Instagram or Facebook, whatever. And it's out there. It's out there in the ether. There's no taking it back. So that, that's probably the main difference really. Okay. Okay. So growing up kind of in the, you know, the writing world, have you learned to kind of temper yourself pretty e easily in order to be, be, I guess, a little bit more socially acceptable? I don't know how to say that. Um, or is that something that you had to learn kind of as you went? Yeah, both. I mean, you know, when you're written, when you're writing for a traditional publication, Peterson's Hunting, Guns and Ammo, Outdoor Life, yeah, yeah, definitely have to temper what you want to say um, for a couple of reasons. One, it's for it's for everybody. Um, as editor of Peterson's Hunting, I can't tell you how many times I'd get letters from 75 year old guys going, what the hell? You guys said shit in an article. And I give these to the local Boy Scout troop and I give them to my grandson and that's offensive. And, and you got to realize your demographic is 
an older demographic and they've been subscribing to that magazine maybe for 40 years. And so you'd come in and try to change it or write something a little bit more, you know, racy and it did not go well. When I came on to Field Ethos, Field Ethos is the exact opposite of that. You know, we started from the ground up. I mean, Don Trump and Jason Vincent, uh, brainchild Field Ethos, kind of as a counterculture movement against the traditional media um, and the traditional, I don't want to say censored, but curtailed media <clears throat> that they were used to seeing, whether that was you know, Peterson's or Outdoor Life or whatever. And they, they just wanted to say whatever they wanted to say. And by doing that, they found a home. Um, there are so many people that do want to read. So it's a different model. People attract to what they're saying, and they've developed followers that are very okay and very accepting of an unapologetic, anti-woke uh, hunting narrative or shooting narrative. And so they don't really offend their readership much because their readership is, is wanting that. So when I've joined Field Ethos, you know, my writing, it's been kind of liberating. It's like, oh, write what you want, you know, write. We're not going to really censor <laughs> And, and it's found a home. So I think it can go both ways. It depends on who your audience is, right? I mean, if your audience is expecting one thing in a magazine and that's what they bought into, you kind of need to toe that, I don't say the party line, but you need to write to that, to that reader. If it's uh, something like on Field Ethos, we're attracting readers because of the type of writing we're doing. Okay. Okay. So talking about Field Ethos, then when you guys started to develop Field Ethos, how did you go about kind of saying, hey, we want to, you know, portray hunting in this way and firearms in this way and be to your words, you know, anti-woke? How did you guys sit down and develop that and say, you know, hey, there's there's a world of people out there that will appreciate this? I think it all comes back to just plain honesty. Um, and, and that really has probably been the driving force of Field Ethos from its inception by, by Jason and Don, which is just pure honesty. You know, if you look at the movement of hunting and where it's been going, it's been very dishonest. Um, if you look at, you know, Meat Eater and, you know, Steve Ranella, you know, they, their method and what they're all about is, hey, we, we hunt to eat. Well, that, that's completely disingenuous in my opinion. And, and in Field Ethos opinion, that's not why you hunt. You know, uh, meat is a wonderful byproduct. <clears throat> you know, my family's lived off game meat almost exclusively for 30 years and probably before that, my father as well. Um, but that's never why we hunted. I mean, if you look at the cost involved in hunting, uh, you cannot justify, you could go to your local farmer's market and buy, you know, free range chickens and, you know, Icelandic sheep and you know everything else for a pittance of what you pay to hunt. So you can't make that justification. Now it sounds great at a New York cocktail party <clears throat> when an anti-hunter goes, Oh God, that's horrible. Why do you hunt? And you go, well, I, I do it to feed my family. They go, Oh, that makes sense. I like, yeah, that, I, I get that. I, I don't, I'm, I'm not for trophy hunting. I like meat hunting. That sounds good. You go, well, that, that's bullshit. It's not, it's not why you're hunting. You hunt for family. You hunt for culture. You hunt for experience. You hunt for entertainment. You know, there are many reasons, maybe a mix of all those reasons why somebody hunts. And meat's one of those reasons. But to say you're, you do it for, you know, sustaining your lifestyle and stocking the freezer, it's a byproduct. And so that's very disingenuous. You know, it, it, all of a sudden it's like, why are you going to Africa? You know, Africa is an adventure. You should celebrate that adventure and, and the culture and getting to know the people and learning about the animals and feeding, you know, other people with the meat you shoot. Those are all reasons to go to Africa. But to say, oh, I, I hunt for meat and fill my freezer with it and I'm going to Africa or I'm flying to Alaska to go catch salmon. It's like, really? Do you know what the global footprint, the carbon footprint of you flying to Alaska to go catch salmon is? I mean, it's not environmentally sustainable. It's not, you know, uh, it's not economically sustainable. 
So it's a disingenuous statement, you know, uh, just like so much of the gun culture is, well, you know, it's, you saw that with Ryan Bussey's book, I'm pro gun, as long as it's a shotgun, you know, as long as it's a handgun, which I find very strange because handguns kill, unfortunately, more people than any other type of firearm out there. But I'm not okay with ARs. Wait a minute, you're either okay with firearms or you're not, you know, and there's not a lot of gray area in there. And so many of the media outlets have tried to make these gray areas why they do something to justify and so we have a very unapologetic honest take on things and that extends not only to our ethos of why we hunt shoot own guns but also in how we deal with advertisers and people we support there's many companies that are not advertisers that make a great product glock is a good example of that i mean you'd be hard pressed not to say a glock is a great carry firearm um they don't spend a dime with us but we still extol the virtues of glock because honestly that's a very good firearm um we purposely don't partner with companies that we don't are not comfortable recommending their product you know don's been very clear on that from the very beginning you know later on in my career after a writer i became a publisher and as a publisher you're kind of more in charge of the business side of a magazine and honestly you're looking at uh you know, anywhere you can make revenue and where you can make budget. And so you'll partner with a lot of companies, some of which you may or may not believe in completely. And Don looked at it completely. There was like, look, you know, we're well-funded. We don't necessarily need advertising dollars. Um, I only want to partner with people that are guns I would personally use, or I'd personally recommend to my friends. And if they don't meet those criteria, yeah, not something we want to partner with. I don't want to put my name on it. I don't want to put the field ethos brand on and we've, we've operated in that fashion. And I think because of that, the honesty in both why we do what we do and the honesty in who we recommend using, whether that's an outfitter or a product, has really reaped a lot of dividends for us. People really are excited about that because we're not just shilling a product. And that's something they're not getting elsewhere. You know, influencers, 100% are shilling product for a manufacturer for pay. Magazines, television shows, all of them. You know, in order to operate the way they have to operate financially, they have to just shill product, um, good or bad. You know, it could be a great product by happenstance or it could be absolute garbage that they have to shill. We don't operate that way. And that's, uh, I think, probably is what's creating the buzz around us. Yeah. Okay. I I, I love that. And it's funny because, you know, I spent some time, you know, before you and I sat down, uh, I think it was last week when I was looking through your website. And it's, it's funny because you can definitely see that, right? The simplicity in the website in and of itself what you guys stand for and how straightforward everything is. Right. I read through, I didn't even know how many articles and it was kind of fun. Cause like you could almost hear the voice of people in each, in each article. Right. It was like, there was like, I mean, no fucks given. It was really fun, you know, like reading it. Um, <clears throat> okay. Okay. So when it comes down then to kind of establishing the honesty of it, right. I, I can only imagine that being blunt, honest, very selective, you know, has a lot of pros, but also has a lot of drawbacks to it. How do you guys both either individually or as a company, right, navigate kind of the naysayers? Well, from the consumer side, we we really have got a cult following. I don't think we have a lot of naysayers. We very rarely get any complaints. Um, But you're right. There is definitely an advertiser relationship. And we try to be very honest with our advertisers. Like, hey, we're you know, we're brutally honest at times, you know, it starts at the very beginning. You got to look at who you want to partner. When you, when you partner with Leupold's of the world and Blazers of the world and Walders of the world, SIGs, there's not a lot of bad things to say, right? I mean, they're, they're all really good products and that's not some, so if you start with those type of financial partners, 
Um, you don't have to sugarcoat stuff. Um, it's when you start with B and C and D tier companies that you got to go, man, well, we'll pick this product to talk about and not that, or we'll try to sugarcoat this. So we've avoided it from the very beginning by just saying, mm, we don't partner with those. Um, you know, if it's a company that, like I said, if we wouldn't use ourselves and Don asked me that question early on, I was pitching him an advertiser that wanted to be part of us. And I said, man, they're willing to pay this much money. He goes, do you ever use that <clears throat> product when you go out bird hunting? I'm like, no, I normally grab this product. He's like, well, there you go. That's who we want to partner with it, not this one. <laughs> so you start from the very beginning. But even when you've picked the very best of the manufacturers, which we've done, you know, occasionally there'll be something you don't like about a product. And, you know, since we're honest about it, we'll say, yeah, yeah, yeah the color of that's ugly. Or, you know, I didn't care for the trigger or I didn't like this, you know, because you're trying to deliver honest editorial messaging to your readers. And you will get blowback. It may cost you money. You know, you may get a manufacturer that don't like that. I'm not going to support you again, you know, because you were honest about it. So it's a, it's a knife edge, right? You got to kind of walk that and say, what's more important, your readership or your advertisers? Unfortunately, the re well, not unfortunately, the advertisers, excuse me, the readers are more important, but the advertisers keep you afloat, you know, so financially. So I think we're kind of creating a business model that, you know, we just launched our first print publication. We're charging an absolute premium for it. Um, we're charging $15 a piece. You know, compare that to most magazines or three to $5 a piece. We're charging three times as much. So we're putting more and it's selling like hotcakes. Guys are buying it nonstop. And by doing that, it doesn't make you as dependent upon an advertiser, right? If the reader is willing to pay for that content, then you can kind of go, okay, you know, we're a little bit more independent because we do charge a premium for our magazine. And if you go back and look at Field and Stream and Outdoor Life and Peterson's all back in the 50s, 60s, they were very autonomous. I mean, they there was a separation of church and state between editorial. You guys wrote what they wanted to write, whether it was Elmer Keith or Jack O'Connor. I mean, the writers of the day single-handedly probably sunk the Model 70 post-64. I mean, they just bashed that rifle. That wouldn't be allowed today in a, in a modern publishing world. It's like, no, Winchester spends this much money with us. You can't talk like that about that. So that separation of church and state in most mainstream media has been really blurred. And, and the advertising dollars sometimes outweigh the true editorial message. Um, you know, and we're trying to avoid that. We're trying to avoid that. And really, because really, ultimately, if you put your readership first and give them honest stories, you know, you, they, they stay with you. They keep following you. They keep reading it. And advertisers want to be part of that. And when you say something great about an advertiser, which in many, many cases, it's very warranted that it means something, you know, if you just say everything's great all the time, eh, how much value are you? You know? Yeah. Yeah. So when you guys start to bring on, um, I guess either new advertisers or these top tier companies, are you actually like, I know that you say you'll grab you know, X product when you go out bird hunting rather than, you know, Y product. Right. So when you guys are selecting your, um, you know, top tier, uh, products, right. So when you're, when you're going out bird hunting, to use that analogy, right. If you're picking X product versus Y product, are you relying on either all of your past experiences to, to say, Hey, we want to work with this company, or are you actually reaching out to hypothetically write the loopholes and saying, Hey, you know, I'm contemplating working with Leopold. You know, I want to have these products to talk about. Can you help me find a way to engage with you? Or are you, how do you navigate those partnerships? Um, a lot of it's your past experience, right? And so we will couch that with, if there's a new company on the scene, you go look at their product, you'll test it first, then go. A good example of that is, you know, luckily I've had 30 years of testing products and I know every company out there and how it works and how good it is. Don is equally as adept. Uh, shockingly, I think most people look at Don as, 
you know, uh, oh, he's a celebrity, you know, president's son that kind of likes to hunt. Absolutely not. Don is a one percenter on gear and the guy is nuts. If he wasn't Don Trump, he would be an editor of any one of the publications out there, guns and ammo, shooting times, whatever. He is an absolute gear geek. So he brings a wealth of knowledge to that table as well, that his past experience. But, you know, I think Taurus is a good example. You know, Taurus has got a history of like, eh, you're okay. You know, if you can afford this, it's a just decent handgun. Well, about Three years ago, uh, Brett Voorhees uh, came on as our CEO, and he has just completely flipped the script with Taurus. I mean, he is starting to make, Taurus is making some really fine firearms in the U.S. Uh, with their U.S. manufacturing capabilities, um, it, both in the semi-automatic handgun space, in the big bore hunting revolver space, and in their 22 rimfire space, like their TX-22. So I know Brett. You know, we'll do a partnership together. And the first initial reaction was, yeah, well, you know, it's Taurus. Does that really, is that fit our model of a company that we would wholly recommend? And I said, guys, it's changing. Taurus is not what you thought it was five to 10 years ago. And so we took it on as a partner and very openly said, we're going to test these out and report back on our findings. And guess what? So far, the TX-22, their Raging Hunter series, you know, their auto pistol have been excellent and, and we're reporting accordingly uh, and, and, you know, telling guys how well these are. And that's a story to be told because I think there is a perception that like, yeah, they're made in Brazil and they're, they're good, they're serviceable, they're economical, but they're not necessarily your Smith & Wesson. Well, that, that is changing. And, you know, we've adapted our thought process to say, yeah, now you should definitely look at these guns or they're an excellent, not just for the money, but an excellent gun. But then in the cases of Leopold, you know, we've had a 30 year history with them. And in the cases of Blazer, I've been shooting Blazers for 20 years. You know, it's like, you know, these guns, they have not changed. They've always been excellent and they're still excellent. Um, but yeah, as a company changes and evolves like Taurus, we're always willing to look at that and honestly test it and honestly review it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Okay. So I know that when, or I know that Field Ethos isn't just review, right? You guys write a lot of articles on, you know, hunting, guns, ammo, tactics, gear, all of these things, right? How do you guys kind of separate who does what and then go down the rabbit hole? Um, we've got it broken out. We have one new piece of content on digital that comes up a day, one new feature article. And I think we're at about 20% gear and 80% the rest of buckets, fish hunt, adventure, travel. And we try to have a new piece every day, no more than about two gear pieces. You know, we're not a gear review site. We're not somebody that's just trying to review gear, but it makes up 20, 30% of what we do is our, is our gear type reviews. Um, but yeah, the other 80, 75, 80% is experiential hunt, fish, travel, adventure. Okay. And the folks that you're trying to target, who are you trying to target? What's the message that you're trying to share with everybody? Really? <clears throat> I kind of jokingly couch field ethos as, you know, 1960s playboy meets Mad Men meets true magazine <laughs> meets, you know, that, you know, revitalization of the adventure loving, unapologetic traveler, hunter, angler, you know, that, that we've gotten away from. It's shocking to even think about that, that in an quote unquote unwoke industry, the hunting and fishing one, we've had this, you know, seismic shift, I think, in very apologetic for why we hunt, very apologetic and couched for why we own firearms, um, you know, very reserved, almost browbeaten, if you will, of how the, you know, the, the mainstream world is so against what we do and we need to really be careful what we say and apologize for. I'm sick of it. Don's sick of it. All of our guys at Field Ethos are sick of it. And so there's also a massive group of consumers that are sick of this, you know, sick of this type of, you know, kowtowing to the masses. And so anybody that is not 
interested in uh, following a PC line is our consumer. Anybody that just goes, no, I love to hunt, period. Uh, I'm I'm a hunter, whether I'm a woman or not. I hate the, oh, she's a great woman hunter or female hunter. It's like, no, you're a hunter, period. Uh, if you if you identify as a hunter, an angler, an adventurer, and are sick of you know uh, party line PC woke type content, more for you. <laughs> I love it, and it was fun. And it's fun reading too. You know, I, I gotta say it was it was fun. I, I, I was. <clears throat> I think we've gotten. It's kind of funny because of that mantra, we've gotten some of the world's best writers working for us. In some cases very much above board, like uh, your Pat Hemingway's, Ernest Hemingway's great-grandson does a lot of writing for us and very much exclusively to us. But we've also got some of the absolute best writers in the industry that we've put up under nom de plumes because they're, they're almost still scared to say, I don't know if I'll, this is what I really want to say. I don't know if I want to tie my name to that. Like, good, good, write it for us anyway. We'll put it up under Mr. Black, Mr. Pink, you know? So we've got some of the best writers that are household names. They go, I've got an opinion on something and I want to say it. And, it, you know, it may affect my sponsorship or it may affect my main writing career with a magazine if I say it under my name. But can I write it under Mr. Black? Absolutely. Write it. You know, so we've become a platform for, I think, once again, complete honesty, but people just saying their honest thoughts and opinions. Yeah, and I think that's I think it's lacking. Even in social media, you look at how Don gets ratcheted down or it sometimes field ethos gets ratcheted down. I mean, there's big tech controlling what we say and that's one of our main goals in this next coming year and we're doing a pretty good job of it now is is taking people from that social ecosphere using that as a megaphone and bringing them over to our site having them sign up to our newsletter getting our print publication because i think all of us agree that social media may go away for us for our space you know for the hunt fish shoot community probably not fish but the hunt shoot community yeah, we're kind of, we're living on rented ground where the landlord hates us, right? And uh, there could be a very quick time. I mean, if you ever imagined, you know, a sitting president of the United States getting shut off from social media, you know, it's a, that, that's insane. That's complete censorship, you know? And the, the definition, in my opinion, of censorship is, you know, I, I may completely disagree with your message, but I completely fight for your right to say it, you know? And right. living in a world where that's not allowed anymore, it's like, oh, you disagree with me, we'll just shut you off. I think all of us in the hunting and shooting community run that risk. And it's probably a very realistic risk in the next five years. So the more people that you can get to come follow you on your own sites uh, with your own messaging, with your own email is really probably the way of the future. Okay. Okay. So I know that you mentioned that you guys are pretty selective in who it is that you work with. Um, How do people get a hold of you if they're like, Hey, you know, I have this piece that I'd like to say, send it to you. How do you, get people to reach out to you, navigate those waters, right? Or are you not looking for any additional writers at the moment? We are always. And in fact, our new print magazine, which is coming out March 1st, it is full of guys that came in from Instagram. Uh, it's not your traditional, there's some of them that are, you know, you'll recognize names and go, oh, that's a Boddington or that's a <clears throat> Pat Hemingway's piece. But then there's a lot of fantastic features that came over completely over the transom that were guys that were just followers, fans that have never written before and they happen to have great skills. And that was the other thing. And you look at traditional media, I think they, they definitely was a good old boys club. It took me five to eight years to break into that good old boys club. This is an opportunity for guys that, you know, never tried it before to go. Yeah, I, I think I could write something and then submit it to us. And we may tell them, no, nope, sucks, sorry. But, you know, we're definitely looking for guys uh, that have not written before. Um, Jeff at fieldethos.com. He, Jeff Johnson's our main editor. And we just published that the other day. Said, hey, you got an idea? Drop it over to Jeff. Um, 
and we'll take a look at it. But a lot of the stuff we publish are guys that are not known writers or have never written before. And we, and we welcome that. You know, and if you can find different voices uh, to give their perspective of the hunting and shooting world, I think it's very valuable. Okay. So I know that we talked to just before um, we started recording that it, there's a misconception that in order to get into the outdoor industry, right, you need to be a hunter or the influencer or some sort of filmographer, whatever the case may be, right? What what experience do you have or a writer, right? What experience do you have with folks that are trying to get into the industry that have none of those you know, either they're not trying to do that as a full-time career or trying to get in with some of these other jobs. I know maybe with field ethos on the back end site, right? Website management, coding, right? What experience do you have in helping folks get into the industry with those types of skills? You know, I think first and foremost, having a passion for whatever this aspect is, you know, and that's what I've always said. I mean, I've hired 50, 60 guys, maybe more than that over the years, young kids out of college, some females, um, the ones that were marginally passionate about it, like, oh, yeah, I used to shoot with my grandfather and I own a gun. It's probably not for you. You work really hard in this industry. You spend a ton of time at it and you'd be much better served financially to go in the medical prosthetic business. I mean, <laughs> you're going to work really hard. But and, and so we actually the kids that I would hire that, that weren't that passionate would wash out in a year or two. They're just like, yeah, you know what? Uh, such and such corporation on the high just doubled my salary. OK, have fun. Um, the ones that go, man, I got to shoot, you know, all Friday with a bunch of somebody else's guns and ammo, or I got to go to Africa, you know, that a company paid for, um, or I got to, you know, I'm, I'm just around guns all the time. Are you um, we'll turn my phone around or the computer around my office is just chocker block full of guns and ammo and, you know, all the paraphernalia things we love. If that trips your trigger, there's a home for you here. I mean, for sure, you know, whether it's a field ethos or any one of the media companies or in the industry in general. And it's, I think it all stems from that passion. If you have a passion for what we do, uh, there's a home for you, whether that's a coder, an engineer, a designer, a, you know, MBA in business, a CFO, there is some kind of role. And even at OSG, where I worked for over a decade, more than a decade, about 13 years, you know, I mean, you look at our CFO, hardcore hunter. I mean, he, he probably can make a far ton more money being a CFO for a different corporation. But, you know, the two weeks a year that he gets to go elk hunting as part of the job, and he's, he's in, you know, um, and, I, and you see that all the way through the line, whether it's digital, you know, uh, social media posters, whether it's, you know, graphic designers, those perks of the job that you don't get working for an accounting firm is really what, you know, makes people stay in this industry. But yeah, there, there is not a job in the world almost that probably does not exist in the outdoor industry. You know, like I said, everything from product development and design to computer technologies, accounting, there is a role in some corporation in this industry. Okay. Okay. So I know there's a lot of life that you live that we haven't touched on, which, you know, I'm sure we could talk a whole day about what would be maybe the one thing that you've learned or wish you would have known going into all of this that you think somebody else would benefit from knowing now? That's a good question. It's my favorite question. <laughs> uh, you know, having a an innate ability or an innate thought that if you work hard, things will turn out right is probably the you know when, when you're 20, you're like, Man, I don't know what am I doing with my life. I'm kind of you know, I could go this direction or that direction, but boy, that's a really low probability of success. You know, becoming 
a successful writer or becoming successful in this business financially is probably you know as hard i don't say it's hard physically but as low percentage odds of saying i want to play for the nba you know unlike saying i want to play for the nba or nfl it doesn't require a god-given you know natural ability i'm six foot eight or i'm you know 260 pounds it requires hard work and if you say oh no i'm going to make it in this career and i'm just going to work hard i'm going to put my nose to the grindstone i'm going to work hard i'll outwork everybody else there uh i'll get up earlier i'll stay later um and believe in yourself that you will be successful. You will. It may take, and, and also realize it's not going to happen tomorrow. It may take five years. You got to be in it for the long haul, be willing to work uh, and believe in yourself that you'll make it happen. And you will. That, that's as simple as it gets. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of to your point earlier of delayed gratification, six years. Yep. I think so. Just hard work for six years, maximizing and capitalizing on every opportunity you get um, both personally as well as interpersonally when you meet people uh, hard work don't expect anything you know to be given to you expect rejection have a thick skin you know, <laughs> and uh, and you will eventually make it um, but you know I, I think it's you know so many kids just expect that hey I can, I can just do it right now it's like yeah you know you need to put in some time you know put in some time put in some hard work and, and you'll make it stay focused okay Perfect. Well, is there anything else in uh, this morning's conversation that you would like to share or get out there that maybe you don't get asked a whole heck of a lot? You know, I think it's a great, uh, what you're doing. Uh, I think your, your podcast fan cat, fantastic interview style is great. I wish you the best of luck. And, uh, if I can ever help out or jump on a podcast, or if you ever like to get anybody from field ethos on there, Jason, Don, et cetera, would love to have you. I'd love to be part of that. Uh, we can make that happen. So yeah, and anytime we forward, just let us, let us know how we can help and we'd love to do so. Okay. Sounds good. Thank you. I'm gonna... All right. Well, thank you. No Appreciate it. <laughs> Mike, once again, man, thank you for taking the time. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation and listening to it again as I edited uh, this afternoon was uh, was a lot of fun. I, I feel like I took a lot of good information away to chew on as far as, you know, delayed gratification, putting your nose to the grindstone, networking is a big one, and also understanding that, you know, some, some risk, some calculated risk in the, you know, the near future can really impact positively, kind of depending on how you play it, right? Positively impact you in the future, depending on how you plan ahead. So I hope everybody listening, I hope you all took some good information away, something to chew on. Um, I will link uh, Field Ethos's, uh, or Field Ethos Journal's website and Instagram in the episode description, but I hope you all have a wonderful day, a great week, and we will catch you next time. Yeah.